resume the study we began last September, uh, taking, taking the summer off, uh, looking at uh, a variety of postcards uh, from our Lord. Uh, but now coming back uh, to uh, the, this uh, study um, through this uh, wonderful narrative of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. While you're turning to that, I'll take the opportunity just to touch on uh, something campers already highlighted. Uh, it's a reminder of our discovery class beginning next week. If you are new to Grace Covenant or if you've been here for a while and are not a, a member of the church, we would love to have you participate. It's true for students as well. Uh, it's an opportunity to get to know who we are, uh, all of our weirdness and good things as well. Uh, but it's also uh, an opportunity to unite, uh, whether uh, to join the church or students. There's an opportunity to be associate members where you can be continue to maintain your membership in your home church and yet have all the privileges of membership here as well. We would be delighted to, to have you. Just uh, shoot us an email uh, so that we'll have the resources that you would need. As we come to our text this morning, um, let me pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would bless us at this time, that we study your word, that you would give us eyes to see what you would have us to see, uh, minds that would comprehend, and hearts that are willing to receive. Ultimately, Lord, we want to see Jesus as he is and as he's been revealed by your word and your spirit. And so, Lord, turn our eyes to him, that we may know you, because those who have seen him know you and have seen you. Uh, bless us, we pray during this worship time to which we give our minds and hearts. We pray in Christ. Amen. Imagine for a moment that an invitation to some special event has just arrived. We'll assume for the moment that it's an event that you actually want to go to. Uh, otherwise, it really blows my whole illustration. And so this invitation has come. What are some of the first things you do? Well, one thing that we inevitably would do is to check our calendars to make sure we have no schedule conflict. And assuming that there is nothing that would uh, preempt us from participating, we are prepared to go. But the other thing that we would probably do, almost all of us would do, whether immediately or as the day of the event approaches, is to check the invitation to see what the expected attire is for this event. In other words, is it formal black tie or is it uh, informal? Is it casual? Is it business casual or country club casual? Or, you know, some of you may need to find out what I have learned, which is that clothing optional isn't what it sounds like, so which is good for us all. But we always want to know what to wear. And the reason we want to know what to wear is because we want to fit in. We don't want to stand out in an inappropriate way. You do not want to go to a formal occasion looking like you just got off the golf course. Nor do you want to go to a garden party, not a garden tea, but one where you're actually going to work in the garden looking like you just came from a wedding and you were the bride and groom. Those are just totally inappropriate things. And even if there's no real rule, we would feel very awkward if we showed up and stood out in the wrong way. We want to fit in. There's something within us that very much wants to fit in and pretty much anywhere we go. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. There's a significant portion of our life is spent trying to fit in. And whether that's in social life or business life or other areas of our life, there's part of us, if we like, to, like people and want to get along with them, is we want to belong. 
or we want to make sure that we're not causing any unnecessary division or making people uptight. And so we have certain social standards when we get in places. General rule that your mother or grandmother probably taught you is never talk about religion and politics in any polite company, which leaves some of us with not a whole lot to say, but um, nevertheless, which may be why we don't get invited either to these special events. But it's for the whole point of making sure that we fit in, we don't cause unnecessary discomfort for the people that are around us or the people that have come with us, that we don't bring embarrassment because you know, we just don't know how to fit in. It's a conversation that somebody has brought up with me from time to time. I won't mention my wife's name, but, um, um, but uh, just, just to make sure that we behave as is appropriate for the occasion. And the reason that that's good is it does say something about us. Because there's, I mean, who wants to be around somebody who doesn't care if they fit in and are just obnoxious all the time or causing difficulties? And the reality is that there is no real merit in being weird, unless, of course, the group you're trying to fit in with is weird, in which case then weird, being weird would probably be a good thing. But we, we just want to fit in and it's understandable and there's and it's a good attribute for for us the problem however is for those who want to be followers of Jesus Christ is this that in the eyes of some people you as a follower of Jesus Christ will never fit in you will never be considered part of the in crowd. You will always be considered weird. You will always be uncool. You may be thought to be narrow-minded, bigoted, and even Neanderthal in your views simply because you believe in Jesus Christ, the man who is also God, and what he has taught as the one who is the image of God and the teacher of all things that are of godliness. There are always going to be people who are going to reject Jesus Christ and reject those who are followers of Jesus Christ. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, that's what John is revealing to us and reminding us if we are not familiar with it. Now, before we go to the passage, it's been a while since we've been in this gospel, and so I want to just give some context so that the uh, passage itself that we study um, will be all the more um, fresh for us. But it's important that we recognize in John chapter 6 and chapter 7, it, 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 they, those chapters are just action-packed. Early in John chapter 6, Jesus is withdrawing with his disciples, trying to get away for a retreat because they had been so intensely engaged in ministry, they were worn out. We're told that they were so involved in ministry, they didn't even have an opportunity to eat. And so it's just they, they needed this R&R to be refreshed, to be restored, and in anticipation of going to the festival, which, will be, which we see in John chapter 7. Now, the problem that they had, though, was people found out where they were going. And some anticipated uh, there. Some people followed. Other people got there before them. So when they got to their retreat spot, they found crowds, large crowds, we're told by John's gospel, they, they counted in their, their census of this, about 5,000 people ultimately. And Jesus, seeing the people, we're told he had compassion on them. It meant he felt their feelings. He felt what they were feeling. And so he did an impromptu seminar for them, teaching them about God, godliness. And then after the seminar was over with, realizing the people had come from a long way and they were far from 
any of the conveniences far from civilization, no 7-Eleven to stop in to pick up a snack for the way home. He told his disciples to go feed all of these people, and they looked out and saw the masses, which are recorded at 5,000, but most scholars would tell us the way that Hebrew recorded things is that that only indicated the men, or at least the, the males that were age 12 and up, so there were 5,000 12 and up uh, males, and, and most scholars would say that there were probably more like 20,000 people that were present at that time, and Jesus, using meager resources, uh, sends his disciples out, spreads out, and everybody was fed to the full, and the people were ecstatic. In fact, they were so excited that they thought this was a good deal, they decided to make Jesus the king and said that they were even willing to use force to make him take the job. Now, that's perplexing to some of us at times because we who are followers of Christ know that Jesus is the king, and so we may be following the story and say, it's about time people kind of figure this out, and then be perplexed when he declines their nomination. I mean, isn't he, the reason he came is to be the king, to bring in the rule of God and make all things right? And yet, we see that Jesus declines their kind offer because he recognized their attitude. It's that they were people that liked the stuff that he was able to give them, that made life very comfortable for them. He could give them, provide for them. It was as nothing. There was no work. There was no labor. There would be no sacrifice, no cost to them. And Jesus, recognizing their attitude, was only in the blessings, but missing the whole point of his coming he declines that because he will not be king apart from the sacrifice that he would endure on the cross. And the people were furious. Jesus sent them packing, but they were angry and the attitudes began to shift. He was at the height of his popularity at the beginning of John chapter 6 and enduring right after he had fed the people. But when he declined their offer to be the king, his public approval rankings went way through the floor. Uh, people um, didn't understand. They were anger because they had felt rejected. Jesus also not only sent them packing, but he sent his disciples across to the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountainside to pray, and while they were trying to cross, a storm had hit, and ultimately Jesus comes out walking on the water in the middle of the storm, saving them from what they considered to be certain doom, and leaving all of his disciples in awe. They continued across to, to, uh, into Jerusalem where they were uh, to participate in the Feast of the Tabernacles, which takes up most of chapter 7. The Feast of Tabernacles is a week-long celebration, each day with a particular ritual reminding of the people of what God has done in history and in the events of history, how they pointed to the coming of the Messiah. And each day and throughout what we have recorded in John chapter 7, Jesus would make very clear in not-so-subtle ways that this whole event was pointing to him. The whole thing was initiated by God to point to the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of every aspect of that. He was drawing attention to himself. And the people who already had mixed feelings about him continued to be all the more divided uh, by what it is that he was saying. And on the last day of the feast, at the high point of everything, Jesus, in, in really very difficult-to-mistake uh, perspective, offers an invitation we see written in John uh, 7, verses 37 and 38. Let me read those. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Here Jesus is declaring himself really with uh, very little disguise. that He is the promised Messiah that simply by trusting in him, by believing in him, by drinking of him, that we receive life, forgiveness, Holy Spirit that dwells within and it wells up and, and bears fruit in our lives. And, and yet, it's what the passage that we're going to focus on this morning, verses 40 through 52, is the people's response to that declaration, as well as the, all of the revelation that Jesus had made about himself uh, during that entire week. And so, picking up in verse 40, uh, let's hear the word of God. When the people heard these words, some of them said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one has ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisee or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, uh, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of our God. And as we look at this passage, the first thing that I hope that jumps out, and really the, the primary thing that should jump out us today is this, is that Jesus Christ is the great divide. The immediate effect of Jesus' life, his ministry, and clearly his words here is a division of the people. We see that John makes that very clear, not just in the narrative and the interactions of the people, but in case anybody was to miss that, verse 43 specifies uh, very, very clearly there was division among the people over Jesus. And so there's no way that we really can miss that. And that's really the central thing that we need to understand from this particular text. Now, in one sense, that's very confusing for many of us. Because we come and we celebrate the Prince of Peace who was prophesied to come to bring peace to the world, to reconcile people to God and bring peace between God and man. And yet, it shouldn't be surprising to us that the effect of Jesus' life is division because Jesus himself told us that this would be the case. In Matthew 10, verses 34 and 35, Jesus declares this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 and 52, Jesus is recorded as having declared this, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, 
two against three. And so Jesus himself is declaring that although he is the Prince of Peace, the effect of his ministry is going to cause division, sometimes even between very closely related people. Now, it's important that we recognize that his mission was not to come and to bring division, but the, the effect of his mission. Jesus didn't come and, and cause the divisions, but he became the object over which people are divided by. Scripture is quite clear. The divisions already existed. The source of division in this world and between people is the brokenness of our lives, our own sin, our own self-focus and self-centeredness. And that exists what the Prince of Peace has come to do is simply to illuminate that which already exists. He brings to light that which we can easily cover, and he exposes that, that our hearts are divided over any number of things, and he becomes the ultimate object over which we are divided. He is not ultimately the cause, although it certainly appears that way, because he's the primary means over which we are able to divide. But where we fall in the way we relate to Jesus determines everything and it causes those divisions. One way that we might look at it this way is that Jesus is essentially like the continental divide that runs uh, from north to south in our, our country out west. Now when I think of continental divide to me it seems like it should be running along the Mississippi River uh, but apparently it's, it runs really uh, uh, north to south from Canada even down um, beyond just the United States but uh, essentially through the Rockies. And the significant aspect of the continental divide, which doesn't divide it equally, is that it is the determining factor of the destination of all the water uh, that hits upon those mountains. If water or snowflakes land on the uh, west or the left side of the continental divide, everything flows out into the Pacific. If something lands on the east side, then it flows either out to the Atlantic or down into the Gulf of Mexico. But even water, rain, snowflakes that come down side by side, they can hit, they could be no more than an inch apart, and yet they will be separated ultimately because of the way that they relate, where they are in proximity to the continental divide. And in a real sense, Jesus is our great divide because it's the way that we are in relationship with him that determines our destination ultimately. No matter how close we might be in other areas, the way we relate to him determines everything ultimately. And so in that sense, Jesus has come in order to reconcile those who will trust in him uh, to God and to bring peace. But in another sense, because there will always be people who reject him, they are not only alienated from God because they have not received Jesus Christ, but ultimately they become divided from those whom Jesus has as well. And so as we look at this passage, it's very important that we understand that the effect of Jesus' ministry is to bring division, even as he's unifying people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and is bringing peace between people who otherwise would be at war based on any human or sociological standards. It defies a lot of our, our instinct, but nevertheless is, is clearly demonstrated and declared here. Now, because Jesus is the great divide, as we look at this passage, one of the things that we need to recognize is this, is that we, we should not be surprised when we find that other people have different views of Jesus. And we see that illustrated in verses 40 through 44. I mean, look at the different reactions that people had to what Jesus said and declared about himself. Verse 40, when people heard these words, some of them said, this really is the prophet. 
In other words, they recognized that he was one who was sent from God to point to the hope that God was providing, whether he was the prophet after Moses who would be a forerunner or whether he was, they were thinking of him as the prophet like Melchizedek who was the only one other than Jesus Christ who was prophet, priest, and king and therefore signifying that he actually was God who has come. But they, they recognized that he had the words that would point them to the desires of their heart. And other people were already a little bit more convinced because they weren't disagreeing with the ones that said, he really is the prophet. They said, he's the Messiah. He, he's the, the risen Christ. So they realized he's not only the one who has the words, but he is the fulfillment of all of the promise of God. And so we, we see these responses to Jesus of, that we, we would find in any Bible-believing church. People who have faith and people who are hungry for something and believing that Jesus is the one who is the key to that understanding. And yet there are others who were there that weren't quite so sure. We're not told their motives. We're not told uh, how intense they were in their skepticism, but they had questions. And, and we see that evidence here because it says in verse 41, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Is not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, one of the things that we, we don't really pick up uh, very easily here, unless you're familiar with the culture, is that some of the people who asked this question were asking that with a, with, you know, somewhat snidely. You know, we, we don't pick that up in, in the way that it's written, but based on the revelation uh, elsewhere and understanding of history of, of the culture. Now, when they said, well, the Messiah come from Galilee, the people that were asking the question were Jews, and obviously they had gathered together for the celebration, and Galilee was a Jewish territory, and nobody doubted that. But the attitude of the sophisticated Jewish people who lived in Jerusalem and in Judea was pretty much the stereotypical attitude that somebody from a polished northeastern city might have about somebody from Mississippi, or maybe more personally, uh, the same kind of attitude that some of our relatives had when my family moved from a nice, plush, suburban Philadelphia home uh, to Tennessee. They, I remember friends asking, I mean, seriously, if people had shoes uh, when I was in college. And I said, well, yes, those of us who have shoes, we go run errands for those who don't. So that's, um, that's you know, we just take our turns and share our shoes. But there are people, just the ignorance, they're not trying to be mean. They just, they just have this idea. Galilee was backwoods, backwater rednecks. And so part of the question they're asking, even if they had good intention, was, is the Messiah going to be a redneck? I mean, that just is beyond their capability of understanding. It just didn't make sense to them. And others were a little more scornful. They just didn't like rednecks. They may be related to them, but so far as anybody would know, we don't want anybody to know. We have redneck blood anywhere in, in our family. And so they were scandalized by this. But the thing that's interesting is in this is they also were exercising or, or demonstrating what is very common today. They had some truths, but they were also without knowledge. They knew that Jesus had come from Galilee, and they knew the scripture says that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, from the line of David, but they had no idea, as anybody who comes and sings Christmas carols on any church in the country uh, in America or anywhere where the gospel is, is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then because the family had to, be, uh, take, uh, uh, to, to leave and became refugees, they found their refuge in Galilee, and so Jesus himself, unknown to many of the people, fulfilled all of the prophecies 
but they rejected him on the basis of either he's a redneck or inadequate knowledge, not understanding that there is more to know. Now, when we look at this passage, if there's pertinent to us today, I think, is that we, we need to recognize a, a couple of things. First, is that we need to be able to handle diversity of thought and opinion of the people who are around us when it comes to Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised that people have different opinions about Jesus. It was always the case. It is the case now. It will always be the case until Jesus Christ returns. But not only should we not be surprised, but we really need to be able to prepare ourselves to live with and handle the divisions among those who are part of the more popular crowds. It's what we are to do in terms of being good neighbors. It's what Christ calls us to do in terms of our, our mission to other people. It's also uh, necessary for us to uh, be, have the effect on the community that God has called us to have. We, we just should not be surprised and upset and offended because people don't know. What God has sent us to do is to help them to hear so that they have the opportunity to respond with more complete information. But while we shouldn't be surprised that there is a diversity of opinion about Jesus, I think what we also see in this text, particularly in verses 45 through 50, is that we should also be prepared to experience rejection from some who would consider themselves to be our cultural elites. We see this in the interaction that's taking place here, first between the religious leaders and then even within themselves as one of the religious leaders is pushing back against his colleagues. If we look at verse 45, we see this. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. Now, it's important that we understand this. The officers he's talking about would be essentially like temple guards. And while they had authority, um, some civil authority, they also had a latitude that um, we may not think of. If they were a Roman centurion, if they were sent out to do something, they did it or they went to jail or died. But the temple guards would be, uh, I was going to say they're more like a mall cop, but they had more authority than that. They went and they were allowed to use their judgment in circumstances and they were sent out to go arrest Jesus and to bring him back so that he could stand trial so that they could convict him and condemn him in a kangaroo court. And they came back without him. And what we see here is that the religious leaders, we also need to understand about them, is this, he's talking about the religious leaders, which would be part of the Sanhedrin, which included the Sadducees, who would be religious and political liberals, who didn't really have a great substance to their faith, but rather used the external things of religion in order to gain political power. And you had the Pharisees, who were religious conservatives, would be very, very well within the Presbyterian Church in America, who were very knowledgeable about the scripture and very uptight and anal in the way that they lived their life in regard to other people. And they were both together. And so when we see the cultural elites, this is not a political statement about one side or the other because the people who were opposing Jesus came from both the right and the left. And they were questioning these guards and they said, all right, why didn't you bring them back? And their response is amazing. No one has ever spoken like this man. As one Bible scholar says, is they were sent out to arrest Jesus and he arrested their hearts. Whether they were believers or whether they were just saying that there's, some, there's more here to be discovered, we, we're not told. But they didn't fulfill their mission. And then we see the response of the religious leaders, both on the right and the left, which is the epitome of people who consider themselves better than everybody else and the evidence of snobbery. What are you deceived to? 
don't you know that none of us, nobody of any account, nobody with any education, with any enlightenment, with any intelligence, none of us have believed in him. And all the people, the riffraff of the masses of the people, you're going to believe them as opposed to we, our opinions? Does anybody else's opinion matter than any of ours? I mean, can you imagine an attitude like that? If you're in college, you can imagine it. If you watch the news or read the newspaper, you can imagine it. If you're breathing and living in a place in our culture today, you can imagine it because those who consider themselves superior to others, no matter what their attitude is about Jesus Christ, they believe that everything hinges upon them. And whatever it is that their consensus is, they think that that's what matters. And it is incredibly arrogant and snotty. And we see it for ugly when we see it here. And yet it's every bit as ugly when we see it in our culture as well. And yet, the thing that's interesting here, we, we see, because Nicodemus comes uh, and introduces, he's part of them, and he recognized the ugliness. He was uncomfortable with it, what his colleagues were doing. He'd had an encounter with Jesus before. Whether he believed at that time or not, he knew that there was more. Whether he believes here or not, we are, we're not told. But he knows that the way that they're proceeding is not right and not even in accord with their own traditions. And he asks the question, do we condemn somebody without trial, without asking them? And their response to one of their own is indicative of the attitude of cultural elites then and now. Because it's nothing short of identity politics in order to put somebody in his place because they're not willing to go along with the program. What, are you deceived to? Are you from Galilee? Well, they knew him. They knew he wasn't from Galilee. They were basically saying, what, are you an idiot? What, are you some redneck as well? Are you one of them? And then they give the reason for this, and it's important we understand uh, the significance of that. Definitively, they declare to this scholar, this Pharisee, uh, Nicodemus, something that they thought he ought to know. No prophet comes from redneck territory, from Galilee. Does anybody know why that is actually problematic? It's because they're wrong. And Nicodemus knew that, and they should know that too. Jonah was from Galilee. Nahum was from Galilee. And these who study the scriptures knew that. But what they demonstrate is when people get so focused on their political and social agendas, that which they declare as fact has nothing to do with what is true. They just want what they want. And the reason that this is so pertinent, because it is incredibly timely for us in our culture today, I don't think that it's any great secret that we live in a culture that is incredibly divided. I recently read an interview in the Wall Street Journal with a man, Dr. Alan Gelzo, who is professor of Civil War era studies and the director of the Civil War programs at Gettysburg College. And this guy is a, a, a big time historian and he makes this declaration or makes the claim that America is now more divided than at any point in the history with the exception of the Civil War. Specifically what he says is this, today's divisions are worse than those at any time in American history except the 1850s and the 1860s. Another professor, Shelby Steele, who teaches at Stanford, has declared this, that today liberal and conservative Americans are so often contemptuous of each other with a passion that would be more logically to be reserved for foreign enemies. 
He goes on and declares that really, that he believes it's not like we're in a civil war. We are in a civil war. And his reason for declaring this is that the right and the left, they don't even see the world in the same way anymore. Where historically and traditionally, people on the right, people on the left, they would see problems that we had in our culture, and they would seek to address the problems. They would just come at it from different ways. But in our present culture, people are not looking at the problems. They're looking past the problems. And the first thing that they want to do before they address the problems is eradicate the people on the other side. And so the biggest problem is not whatever we have culturally. The biggest problem is whoever is on the other side from you. And as long as we eliminate them, then we can deal with the world the way that we want to deal with the world. And I, I think that both of these men are, uh, are, are correct, is that we are living in a culture that is not only deeply divided, but we are in a culture that is experiencing a civil war. And often held hostage in that civil war is Jesus Christ, or at least the, the reputation of Christ. Because you have some people on one side that have held Jesus Christ and declare him to be only a social justice warrior. And then you have people on another side who grab Jesus Christ and he becomes nothing but the, the guardian of any cherished tradition. And what is lost in that is who Jesus Christ actually is and what Jesus Christ's purpose actually is and what it is that he has come to do and how we are relating to him. Not only is Jesus Christ held hostage sometime or his reputation held hostage, sometimes caught in the crossfire, and at other times caught in the crosshairs are those who simply want to follow Jesus Christ in this world. And so we're left with the question, what are we supposed to do? For some, that question doesn't seem to be particularly difficult. They just chose science. And they are genuine believers, but they've decided that they would abdicate the agenda of God's great commission for a political agenda on either the right or the left. And there are others who would just say, can't you can't, can't you just leave me alone? Just let me live my life and um, you all fight it out and I'll be nice to whoever wins. Um, and yet, that option is not left to us. As appealing as it may be for some and what was popular proposed, uh, the, the Benedict option of withdrawal and just create our own little cultures, it's not biblical. Jesus has called a people to himself and he has expected that we who now are his will be salt and light in the communities and in the world in which we live. Withdrawing because of fear and convenience is not an option uh, for those who want to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And even if it was, likely the culture wouldn't allow either. During the Civil War of the 19th century, Sides and lines were relatively clearly divine, but divide, uh, were defined, but there were areas that were borders. In the area of East Tennessee from where Carolyn and I moved, a lot of the people didn't care to fight one way or the other. I mean, there were families that had people on both sides and people could go anywhere, but there were a number of people who chose to sit that one out. But what they found is that uh, rangers or, or raiders from both sides, both from the Union and the Confederacy, would go in at night and then enlist involuntarily the able-bodied men 
And so whether they had a conviction or not, if somebody got to you, you ended up fighting for that side in the Civil War because you were not able to sit it out. And I think many of us have probably experienced that in our culture. Even if we're just trying to sit out of the fence, there are pressures and people that you know on your right and on your left that are constantly trying to drag you to their side or at least to reject their side and go to the other side. And so we're still left with the question of what it is that we are to do. And just because this passage defines a culture that might be similar to ours, does it give us an answer? And I would say it does. And the answer is not found in the primary verses we looked at, verses 40 through 52, that create the context, but the very thing that sparked them in the first place is verse 37 and 38. The answer for those who want to be followers of Jesus Christ, living in a divided world, is to drink deeply of Jesus Christ. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and rivers of living water will well up from within. That certainly is speaking of the promise of the salvation that we have and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit that will belong within everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. But within that salvation, it's not, okay, now I'm saved and that's all that matters. We're told that the water that wells up will produce fruit elsewhere. And part of the fruit is that we will begin to see Jesus more clearly. And if we see Jesus clearly, we see God more clearly. And if we see God more clearly, then we have some idea of what godly wisdom might be. And it is being hijacked and divided on both the right and the left, and neither are reflecting the true purpose of Christ and the true wisdom in this world. Further, we are, if we are drinking deeply of Jesus, we'll become like Jesus more. And if we become more like Jesus, then we will share the heart of Jesus, which is passionate about both truth and about justice, and justice as God sees it, not as some political entity sees it. And so ultimately, the answer for those who want to be followers of Jesus Christ is not to withdraw, not to capitulate, but to recognize all the more the need that we have to be drinking deeply of Jesus Christ, tapped into him, to see him, to allow him to shape our minds, our hearts, our affections, our values, and our practices. And in so doing, though, we recognize not only are we needing God's grace day by day, we have to be prepared to experience rejection by those who will not accept anyone who is embracing Jesus, anyone who is not embracing their cause. The short answer of how is it that we are to live is found in drink deeply in Jesus Christ. The cultural context then and now demands it. <clears throat> and so I'm just going to wrap up with this. How should we live? I will just simply share the wisdom that comes from the most interesting man in the world. Stay thirsty, my friends. Our Father, we come as those who are thirsty, even if we are not aware. Some of us do drink, and we drink that which satisfies.